The romantic version of the grifter is that of Patricia Highsmith's Tom Ripley, cool, collected, methodical. Less romantic is the image of the welfare mom grifting social services with kids she couldn't pay for anyway. If the true grifter is a compound of the majority, an average of averaging of the totality of those creating believable fictions to take them to take things for themselves. Well, if the true grifter is that compound, he looks a lot like Leon. Over the radio, just as I finished reconciling the $89,000 that replenishes one of the casino's ATM kiosks, a security officer calls me to the east parking lot. We have a guest who has fallen down. Now, we have guests who fall down frequently. Most are like Mike, the older gambler who, after sitting at the bar playing video blackjack and drinking bourbon shots in Bud Light for five hours, stumbles to the ATM and collapses a few feet from the bar. Once, a woman tripped on the curb and came up with a huge knot just above her right eye and then proceeded to milk the place for everything from free, free food to free drinks to a four-and-a-half-hour failed attempt to get a free hotel room. There was the hotel guest who kept falling down in his room in an effort to get upgraded to a better room for free until I walked into his room, inspected it, and explained that if he kept falling down in the room, he'd find falling down at the Motel 6 more accommodating. Leon, on the other hand... Leon was something different. I walked outside, and there he was, sprawled out on the sidewalk. He was a white guy, maybe 30 years old, with tattoos creeping up his neck and onto his face. He was wearing a beaten-up ball cap and expensive black face mask under his nose, and his jeans were slid down his ass, exposing his Hanes boxer briefs. Leon was on his side, moaning and mumbling that he was shot. Next to him was a woman who'd seen more than her fair share of desert life in Vegas, her face was leathery, she was missing a front tooth, and her hair was a wiry mass just floating above her thoroughly lined forehead. Don't you die on me! You're strong! If you die, I'll kill you! Ha 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 ha! She barked and then laughed at her own joke with a whiskey-soaked cackle that evoked the opening scenes of Shakespeare's Macbeth. The security officer, Scott, was asking him if he had an ID. None. It was stole like fucking everything they take from the homeless, she rattled. Scott asked how she knew him. Turned out she'd met him in the casino, bought him some drinks, but never caught his name. My name is Leon. I've been shot. Leon stirred enough to declare this bit of intel before going back into his semi-comatose state on the pavement. Scott noticed Leon's right hand was tucked into his shirt a dirty denimish thing with a frayed collar over a grimy t-shirt. He became uncomfortable ever since the pandemic hit. Plenty of reckless assholes have traveled to Vegas from California, sporting illegally obtained pistols and have commenced to shooting the place up. I need you to remove your hand from your shirt, please. Slowly. Scott's right hand was gently resting on his own pistol as Leon slowly pulled out. A pigeon. It looked taxidermized, and Leon gently placed it next to a bush on a raised area just to his left. I looked at the bird. It seemed to be inert. It was weird, but no weirder than anything else it's in in this parking lot. Scott continued to question Leon. The barfly continued to pretend that she knew him longer than an hour, and I kept looking at that fucking bird. 
Despite the lack of a bullet wound or blood or even the extreme pain one would be in should he be shot, the 911 call indicated a possible gunshot wound, so the entourage arriving included a fire truck, an EMT vehicle, and four Las Vegas police SUVs. It was as if Leon was an elected official with all the attendant institutional concern accompanying his safety. As the firemen were looking into Leon, Scott nudged me in a conspiratorial way. The bird is alive, he whispered. I looked again closely. Sure enough, this traumatized pigeon was breathing shallow bird breaths, but still hadn't moved so much as a millimeter from where Leon placed him. Now things were creeping right up in there on the what-the-fuck scale. As soon as the cops showed, the barfly split up Tropicana on her way to I-don't-need-this-shit, and the EMTs gingerly asked him where he was in pain. They asked if they could turn him over, but he didn't want to. I'm shot! My leg's broke! Take me to the hospital! Wait a minute, intoned one of the firemen. Weren't you in the Burger King parking lot last night? No, not me. Listen, we're here to help you, but you need to be straight with me. Was that you last night? Leon slowly turned face up and growled. I told you I was suicidal and you wouldn't take me to the hospital. Are you still suicidal? No, I'm shot. You are definitely not shot. You going to take me to the hospital? I think I got COVID or something. The collective moment of aha spread across the faces of men and women employed to keep the peace to enforce laws and deal with people calling 911 because their cable isn't working. In 1904, O. Henry published a short story entitled The Cop and the Anthem about a grifter named Soapy, who in order to get to sleep in a warm bed in a jail cell, swindles a restaurant into serving him an expensive meal, vandalizes the plate glass window of a luxury shop, repeating his eatery exploit at a humble diner, sexually harassing a young woman, pretending to be publicly intoxicated, and stealing another man's umbrella. None of his games result in the desired outcome, so he gives up the quest. He is then arrested for loitering and gets a three-month stay in Blackwell Island. Three hots and a cot, rent-free. Leon is just another version of Soapy, seeking a night in a bed and some free food at the expense of the state. I'm certain none of the attending service professionals mulling around Leon as he stood up, his leg miraculously unshot and unbroken, have read the story but I'm likewise certain they'd each recognize the truth in the fiction. As the EMT strapped him into the gurney, one cop pops off. Leon, you forgetting your pigeon? He's a falcon. His name is Falcor. He'll wait for me. True to his word, Falcor perched there, unmoving after the EMTs took Leon to his faux hotel for the night. Some four hours later, I took a snapshot of the bird, and the graveyard manager confirmed it was there until the early, early the next morning. The next afternoon, for some inexplicable reason, I checked to see if the pigeon was still waiting or dead. Falcor, like the barfly in Leon, was gone. Lying on the couch after showering and dressing for work, I hear someone's dog howling. It is the cry of a dog left alone but not in pain, just lonely for his owner. It is a sad half-bark, half-howl, and the dog repeats it over and over and over. Earlier in the gym, masked up and distanced, uh, an obviously angered guy trying to work out has lost his cool. Eat shit, hater, he bellows. 
The person he's yelling at is not a parent, but this guy wants everyone in the gym to hear him. Eat shit, hater, like Tourette's or something every 10 seconds or so. Hater, eat shit. This goes on for at least 10 minutes until I speak up. I think he gets the message. What? Am I bothering you? No, no, but it seems something is bothering you. Once acknowledged as if the point was for someone to notice his rage, he settles down into a set of squats. If the past decade in America has had a word to describe it, it must be fragility. Trump's ascendancy to the Oval Office revealed the fragility of our election process. COVID revealed the fragility of our health care system as well as our fragile economic models. Our population's reaction to both expose an emotional fragility that should be embarrassing yet is justified as a rejection of everything from systemic racism to toxic masculinity. From progressive activists to Trump conspiracy theorists, the message underlying the causes is that my feelings and opinions are important. I will howl and bark until someone acknowledges my frustration and pain. Anti-maskers are just incessantly yelling, eat shit, haters. Cancel culturists are stomping their feet and screaming about the hyperbolic pain of reading a book about a black man written by a white woman or a children's author who believes that we are mammals and the default is two sexes. Misandrists, misogynists, trans activists, self-loathing whites, self-aggrandizing blacks, MAGA, and Marxists are all howling like children being denied a cookie or the opportunity to play Fortnite. Eat shit, haters! Last week... The Women's Council of Ireland and Amnesty International Ireland lent their signatures and authority to an extraordinary statement, quote, organizations that seek to defend biology, we repudiate their beliefs. What? Effectively stating that these organizations repudiate biology. Why? The fragility of a tiny slice of humanity who demand that they now get to decide for the rest of humanity what biological sex they are and that it doesn't matter? Last week, Trump's legal team has stated without a flinch that the reason Trump lost Georgia is because Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp has been bribed by a Venezuelan front company in cahoots with the CIA to throw elections to communists. Why? The fragility of both Trump's enormous ego and the fear of becoming exactly what Republicans have already transformed into, the sycophants of an asshole with no moral or ethical boundaries. Eat shit, haters! Our trust in our institutions is feeble. Friendships and family connections proved to be far more brittle than we thought. Our ability to differentiate between fact and fiction is paper thin. The aptitude for communicating ideas has toppled in great part due to our reliance on social media and the ever-expanding definitions of harm and violence online. Offense is now considered by the chattering class as equal to a board to the back of the skull, so the concept of a good-faith debate has been all but shattered. More and more, we are becoming emotionally fragile. As we fragment into our individual pods of shared online values, we lose our spine in the face of adversity. Like a baby bathed in Purell daily, we have no built-in capacity to fight off germs, so like the purified child, we scream when anything unfamiliar or potentially dirty confronts us. Eat shit, haters! My mother was quite young when she popped me out and was determined to keep me clean and healthy. At one point, so the story goes, she had bathed me so often that my skin was covered in an angry soap rash and I was terrified of dirt. My grandfather, an oil rigger by trade, 
trade, saw this unfolding one day and dug a small hole in the backyard, filled it with water, stirred up the mud, and tossed me in. I squalled as if I was in mortal danger. I screamed and screamed, and he, knowing it couldn't hurt me, let me scream. I cried until my tiny baby brain realized the same, and then I relaxed and enjoyed the mud. I've been a filthy human being ever since, although I you know, shower daily. As our tethers to a semblance of shared reality strain, we are assaulted by weapons of chance and nature, and instead of finding common ground, the pandemic is an equal op opportunity infector. We fray further, and those who cannot grasp the seriousness of the situation cry and stomp their feet. A population conditioned to throw tantrums in the wake of any notion of giving up a built-in sense of individualism for the greater good is destined to be leveled by the forces that do not care about their feelings of grievance. A pandemic has no concern for the Second Amendment, police brutality, or who is or is not our president. A virus infects everyone from Proud Boys to Antifa. COVID loves our emotionally needy tendency to be bored, cave in to anxiety, and our societal inability to suck it up for a while. So do us all a favor, okay? Your emotionally retarded state has been noted. We get the point. You're fragile and hurting, and it has been acknowledged. So shut the fuck up and put on a mask. In times of stress, which for me is highly unusual as I tend to shrug off most potential stressors like a kid avoiding a bath, I have my totems. Totems are important, like rituals, in that they give us a sense of something to do or think when things are beyond our control. I knew a guy once who, when things were got, you know, just got a little bit too much for him to handle, would go to the local arcade, get a two-liter bottle of grape soda, and play the Terminator pinball machine for hours. While I'd never call him like a zen guy, he was always pretty calmed down after he came back. Another guy I knew would get freaked out and go practice his scales on the piano, and he was not a piano player but the act put him at ease. Me, when things start spiraling some and I can't shrug it off, I, I'll take a nap, I'll do some heavy lifting at the gym, smoke a pipe, write a blog post, or watch Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Now, ever since The Fisher King came out in 1991, it's held an amazing resonance for me. It's one of those rare films that speaks to exactly who I am in the moment I'm watching. Sometimes I'm Jack, played by Jeff Bridges, laid low by my own arrogance and in desperate need for redemption through helping someone achieve a ridiculous goal. Other times I'm Perry, played by Robin Williams, so damaged by events that I go into a self-delusion and need someone to help me. I've been Anne, played by Mercedes Rule, a virtual giving tree to someone I love deeply who is wounded and broken and only knows how to take. I've deeply identified with Michael Jeter's Gypsy Rose Lee at times. I've likely seen this movie over a hundred times since it hit the theater. I've watched it on HBO, on VHS, on DVD, streaming, and now my iTunes copy. I know what the Red Knight looks like in my life, and I understand that I can be the idiot who crawls up a wall to retrieve someone's holy grail. Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? No. It begins with the king as a boy having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. Now, while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire, 
appears the Holy Grail, symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice said to the boy, you shall be keeper of the grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy was blinded by greater visions of a life filled with power and glory and beauty. And in this state of radical amazement, he felt for a brief moment not like a boy, but invincible, like God. So he reached in the fire to take the grail and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now as this boy grew older, his wound grew deeper, until one day, life for him lost its reason. He had no faith in any man, not even himself. He couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick with experience. He began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. Now, being a fool, he was simple-minded. He didn't see a king. He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, what ails you, friend? The king replied, I'm thirsty. I need some water to cool my throat. So the fool took a cup from beside his bed, filled it with water, and handed it to the king. And as the king began to drink, he realized his wound was healed. And he looked in his hands, and there was the Holy Grail, that which he sought all of his life. He turned to the fool and said with amazement, how could you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? The fool replied, I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. It's very beautiful, isn't it? Sick with experience. What a profound description of the emotional pain of getting older, of witnessing friends disappoint you, love weaken and die away, the illusion of karma giving away to the reality that bad people often win. Sick with experience. The last time I watched, I was Jack, definitely Jack, blinded by my own comfortable hubris and confidence in myself that I did not see the fall coming. Granted, my fall was not even close to Jack's, but that's the beauty of the film. I can find my circumstances in any character. This time around, it was Jack, except I was also Perry being chased by a demon that actually wasn't there, tilting at a windmill that was in fact not a dragon, but just a fucking windmill. Running, fighting, spitting, and scratching at nothing more than the ravings and vitriol of people with low esteem and narcissistic literary midgets who simply don't like me. This time I was also Perry. Now, while I'm Jack or Perry or the wheelchair bum played by Tom Waits, I am almost always the king of this fable, you know, because we are all the main character of the cinematic version of our lives. There's always a wise fool who unwittingly hands me the grail of water that heals things over, creates the scars that indicate that I survived. Who that fool is anybody's guess when it's someone, often often it's someone who loves me and whom I love, but other times it's someone random who just says something that I was thirsty for but didn't know I needed. I don't get sick much. Rarely do I get the flu. I still don't have COVID. Um, and very often I don't have a cold. Sick with experience, though? Yeah, once in a while, and the Fisher King is the perfect antidote. 
Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts.